Good evening. Let us pray once again. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for caring for us, for providing everything that we need, especially for salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, we thank you because we can give back some part of what you have given to us. And we pray that this might be used exclusively to advance your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture reading this evening comes from 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 27. 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 27. We are going to start a new book, a series on the book of Kings. And this is the first section that we are going to look at. This is God's word. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in, in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite. And brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never said at any time, his father had never at any time displeased him by, by asking, Why have you done thus? And so, he was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Job, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside En Rogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty man, or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to the king, David, and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, Swear to your servant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Then, why are you still speaking with the king? I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now, 
The king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and he has invited all the sons of the king, Abiata the priest, and Job, the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them, who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Otherwise, it will come to pass, when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, Here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord the king, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day, and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, and the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live king Adonijah, but me your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servant who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? This far ends the word of the Lord. So, let us seek the Lord's face once again. O Lord God, we come humbly before you, we came here because you call us as your people to hear your voice. We want to learn from you. We want to be edified. We want to be taught. We want to be rebuked. We want to be built up in faith. So do it through your word. May your spirit guide us. In Christ Jesus, amen. Before seminary, I was always taught history from a human standpoint. And as the teacher told us about the events that occurred throughout human history, rising and falling of nations, great personalities, wars, success and crisis, I, it sounded to me like everything happened randomly. Or perhaps history was determined by prominent minds and powerful figures. But as Christians, how do we read the events that happened in the past and the ones that surround us now? What is history anyway? Does God direct it? Why is it that sometimes we don't perceive his hand working in times of turmoil and crisis? The book the books of First and Second Kings are history read from a biblical standpoint. 
And as such, they teach us to interpret history. But more than that, they teach us how to find our place in history and how to direct our lives in it. As history, these books tells us account, give us account of personalities, rising and falling of kingdoms, wars, in chronological order. They cover about 450 years from the death of King David until the captivity of God's people in Babylon. They are records of things that happen in the Old Testament, but they are more than that. Sinclair Ferguson says that they are also prophetic. In fact, this is where they are placed in the Hebrew Bible among the prophets as one book instead of two. They analyze historical facts through the lenses of what God has previously revealed particularly what he has revealed in the book of Deuteronomy, because at the time of the kings, people did not have the whole Bible, but they had the law of God, and they were to interpret history from that standpoint, from the standpoint of God's revelation. So in this way, these books also teach us and call us to look at the events of the past of God's people so that we know how to direct our own lives today and in the future. Today we are going to start a series on this book, and uh, the author of this book, uh, it's debatable who is the author. Some say that it was Jeremiah, but many Reformed theologians agree that it's better to take it as, as unknown. They do not know. They do not define the author. So Mark Dever divides the book in four sections. First, 11 chapters cover the life of King Solomon. Chapters 12 through 14 narrates the division of the kingdom. Chapters 15 and 16 tells us about the decline of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Chapter 17 through 22 tells us the story of Elijah. Well, chapter 1, verses 1 through 27, it starts telling about a crisis in the kingdom. David is declining, and although his days are seemingly coming to an end. Until this point, he has not formally declared his successor. And that put the future of the kingdom at risk. And the text presents us with two strategies to crown two different men. One is the strategy of Adonijah that is trying to king himself. And the other is the strategy of Nathan the prophet, who is trying to make sure that the right king is going to ascend to the throne. Whose plan is going to prevail? Is the destiny of the nation up in the air? Is human craftness going to decide the outcome? 
Is God a mere spectator of these events? I think it, these questions are relevant because what happened in this narrative represents well what happens in our days. In moments of uncertainty, in moments of turmoil, we are tempted to think that God is a mere spectator of history. But he is not. Our text teaches us that God directs history. He is actively advancing his kingdom, even through the most unstable moments, and despite all plots against it. We are going to see, we are going to divide our message in three points. First, plans to advance one's own kingdom. Second, plans to advance God's kingdom. And third, God's eternal plan. Plans to advance one's own kingdom. Plans to advance God's kingdom and God's eternal plan. And it is my hope that as we go through this text this evening, we will be challenged to read history from a biblical standpoint. But more than that, that we will take our responsibility in history. Our responsibility according to what the Word of God reveals to us. Let us start our first point. Plans to advance one's own kingdom. Israel's brave warrior king is dying. And while David was declining, Adonijah was exalting himself. He says, I will be king. There is an emphasis on the I here in the Hebrew language. Just to, there is an emphasis or a stress in self. Just as there is an emphasis on self, on the heart of every arrogant person. Their speech, their thoughts, their actions are full of I. I want this. I want that. I deserve. They think foolishly that they determine they are master of their own lives. But before we judge Adonijah and justify ourselves, let me remind you that this is our natural, the natural impulse of our hearts since the fall of Adam, when Adam was not satisfied with what God gave to him, and he wanted to make himself equal to God. Since then, we want to make ourselves kings and queens. Verse 5 says that Adonijah is start doing things to crown himself. He saw David's decline as an opportunity to climb to the throne. And this is his strategy. First of all, he just brings this big parade like a king. And he has 50 men to run before him. That would be sufficient to announce that someone important is on, its, in, is on his ways. He has also a royal guard. He has Job. Job was once a prominent captain of David's army. And Adonijah throws a big party. This is exactly the way to promote oneself before the eyes of the world. Image. 
This is how many politicians, many superstars do. They build a nice image of themselves. Adonijah also had religious people around him. He has Abiathar the priest. Israel is a theocracy, is a religious nation, so it is important to have a priest beside you. Finally, and for obvious reasons, there are people that Adonijah did not invite for his party. He did not invite Solomon because he saw him as a threat to his plan. He did not invite Nathan the prophet. Nathan has proved that his allegiance was to God, even when the king, David, was committing adultery. So he's not going to invite him. And we suspect that Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the others were not invited for similar reasons. Well, our culture would probably look at Adonijah as a guy of a promising future. He is driven. He is ambitious, proactive, a profile for success in this world. Our text highlights two things that were encouragement for his attitude and his pursuit. One was his father's indulgence. Our text says in verse 6a that David had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? And as parents, I think if we could foresee what our neglect can do to the life of our children, it can destroy them. I think we would listen when the scriptures tells us to discipline our children. Verse 6b says also that Adonijah was handsome. In the ancient world, it counted a lot. People regarded physical qualities of a great importance for a ruler. Do you, do you remember Saul, a king after man's heart? The people of Israel asked for a king just so they could be like the other nations. And God gave them Saul, the tallest, the most handsome one, but his reign was a disaster. Self-exhortation is the way of the world. But it can happen in the church as well. Pride, ambition, hunger for power can creep into the church. The story that we have before us happened within the people of the covenant. The desire to exalt ourselves is always at the door of our hearts. Instead of submitting to God, we want to do it ourselves. We want to do it our own way. But while the world holds such a man and such women in high places, God sees them very negatively. Notice how Notice that Adonijah's profile brings to mind another handsome, another usurper that exalted himself, Absalom. See how the text compares Adonijah to figures 
that God disapproves. He compares him to Saul. He compares him to Absalom. God has shown displeasure for this type of spirit, especially because we are not talking about an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of God. A kingdom, the kingdom of God. Israel's polity of succession was divine appointment. Divine appointment. Deuteronomy 17, 15 reads, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. This is God's instruction to Israel. Also, David represented a king much greater than him. And his lineage was part of God's plan for humanity. Adonijah refused to submit to God's design for the nation of Israel and the design of God for himself. He did not regard the king that God put on the throne. He did not consult David. He did not let God decide who is going to succeed David. From all human standpoint, Adonijah was threatening the promises of God to the house of David. That promise would be fulfilled in one man that God has chosen. It's not going to be fulfilled in a self-made king. Not that. But let us look at another strategy in our text. Let us turn to verse 11. There we find a second strategy. It's Nathan, the prophet. When he learns that Adonijah is trying to get hold of the throne, he makes a plan that guarantees that the rightful king is going to ascend to the throne. Nathan shows allegiance not to himself, but to the rightful king. To the rightful king. He does not make much noise. He does not instigate a rebellion against David's apathy. Remember, the mighty men of, of David were not invited he could have gathered them to overthrow Adonijah, but he did not do that. Instead, he uses his abilities of persuasions, abilities to make good plans in favor of God's appointed king. He humbly informs David, remember, though weak and old, he was the legitimate king. He humbly comes to David and informs him of the plans of Adonijah. Nathan, as well as Bathsheba, are acting based on a king's oath. Solomon will be king. They both took the path of self-humiliation as opposed to self-exaltation. When they come to the king, they bow. I think it was especially difficult to Bathsheba to bow before her husband in that very moment when he was assisted by the young Abishag, who was brought to the king's presence, especially to warm him up. Nevertheless, she bows. 
she bows down. It was to save her life, yes. It was to save the life of her son, yes. But she did it with respect, with submission to the king. Because, above all, she believed in the kingdom that God had promised. Her own name in Hebrew means the daughter of the oath. And now she asked based on an oath, a covenant oath spoken by David. You see, it's more than politics and power that is at stake here. We are talking about the kingdom that God has promised. A kingdom that has no end. A kingdom that you and I are part of as the church. Solomon himself is spoken of, but until this point, he's not present in a scene. He's not making any claims. And as I look at these characters, I think that the attitude that they took really teaches us that while self-exhortation is an indicator that one is looking to build his own kingdom, self-humiliation is a mark of the subjects of the kingdom of God. Don't we say this in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom, your kingdom come. How much does this request shape our lives, shape our plans? I think we should be asking these questions to ourselves because, like in this narrative, choosing between the self, the, the path of self-humiliation and the path of self-exaltation is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. There are only two ways to live this life, two directions to aim our projects and plans to pass. Either we make ourselves kings or we bow to the legitimate king. Either Adonijah is king and that means that Solomon is going to die or Solomon is king and Adonijah will live just as long as he submits to the rightful king. Who is going to succeed? Well, the answer, of course, depends on another plan made in eternity. Every human endeavor depends on this master plan. And this is our third and last point. God's eternal plan. When I was in high school, I had a very intelligent history teacher. Very knowledgeable. And as he was teaching us and speaking about the great events of history, especially when he spoke about turmoil, wars, and, fam and famine, he would always challenge God. He would say, I remember, well, in such and such war, in such and such famine, where was God? And boy, that, that bothered me so much. But at the time, I didn't know, didn't know how to answer it. Unfortunately, sadly, I wish, I wish at that time, one of those times, I had opened my Bible to 1 Kings 1 or to any of the parts, many parts where the scripture tells us about 
God's eternal plan for humanity. That plan that is in agreement within the three persons of the Godhead, it consists of sending his only begotten son to rescue his elect. Ephesians 1.4 teaches us that God chose a people for himself before the foundation of the world. Galatians 4.4 says that he came to the world in the fullness of time. And the scripture says that he's coming back to rescue his people. This divine plan runs history. You see, history is not a succession of random acts. It is not determined by human endeavors. Rather, it is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption to his people. And that he does through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross and rose again. He gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He crowned him. He gave him the nations. Jesus is the king of kings. In Psalm 2.6, God says of Jesus, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That determines the course of history. If we take this determining element from history, then everything looks like a mess. A random succession of acts, a game won by whoever is the cleverest, whoever is the craftiest. The end of any human endeavor is determined by this master plan. Whoever aligns to it will succeed. Whoever opposes it will be defeated. The characters of history should be interpreted in light of this plan of redemption, especially the characters of the Bible. Based on that plan, God made everything for a purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The story of the book of Kings, as well as the stories of the Bible, have as their main character. Not Adonijah, not David, not even Solomon, but Jesus. Even though these men are kings, their kingship should be interpreted in the light of a greater king and in light of a greater kingdom. God has promised that a son of David will ascend to the throne. He will be there. He will be a king forever. But the scriptures tells us, and it's obvious for us because these men died, that it was not fulfilled, this promise was not fulfilled in any ordinary sin of David. But in Jesus Christ was David's son and Lord at the same time. Not even David's failure can ruin this plan. Not my failures can ruin this plan. Arrogant attempts of self-exaltation cannot ruin it. Jesus came to the world to establish a kingdom that has no end. He spoke of it. He said, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Unlike David, Jesus is a king who does not grow old. 
Unlike any other king, he is a one that death could not hold. He's a king forever. He rules everything that is going on in the world right now. Even when there is dispute for wealth and power in the world, God's plan goes on unchangeable. This is the message of the book of Kings. It is a display of human failure and of God's faithfulness. It teaches us that despite human failure, God will keep his word good. The church is the representative of God's kingdom in the world. She is God's instrument to advance his kingdom. Nevertheless, the church can go through crisis because sometimes we can be living in God's kingdom wanting to build our own. And that will bring, bring crisis to God's kingdom. We may not voice it, but sometimes it's evident in the way that we live. Deep in our hearts, our ego shouts, I want to be king. I want to be queen. But you see, this spirit is doomed to failure because in the kingdom of God, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled because Jesus rules and God resists the proud. So I think one important takeaway of this text is humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Kiss the Son of God, lest he be angry and you will perish. Your efforts, your work, your abilities should be applied to advance God's kingdom. Instead of working for yourself, ignoring the king of kings, serve him. Seek to promote his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. But how do we engage in kingdom work? Well, I think in many ways. For parents, it can mean raising children for the kingdom. In the fear of the Lord, we are to cherish our children, but we are also to discipline them. Sometimes we want to raise our children for ourselves, and that most likely are going to make them and like people who want to be kings and queens themselves. Just as happened between David and Adonijah, his indulgence helped his son to grow in a way that refused God's plans for his life and wanting to make his own way. I think we as parents can do a great job for the kingdom of God when we raise children to be servants of God, arrows, arrows for the kingdom. Nathan is also a good example to work for the kingdom. 
He used his abilities, good strategies, and persuasion skills to advance God's kingdom and to serve God's king. It is very common for us to see in the book, and we will see in this series, God working in many extraordinary ways, many miracles. We see Elijah even raising the dead. But here at the very beginning of the book, God sovereignly works through his people in ways that are very ordinary, using the gifts that he has given to them. Sometimes we are quick to use our gifts and personal skills, beauty, personality, money, position, to satisfy our self-ambition. But when it comes to serve the church of God, we want God to work a miracle. We just sit back and wait for a miracle. When sometimes God wants to work through you, using the abilities, the gifts that he has given you. What gifts has God given you? Are you using it for kingdom work? Are you using it for kingdom work? Use it to advance his kingdom. Has he given you influence? Use it lawfully. Has he given you persuasion? Use it perhaps to convince a brother who is going in the wrong direction to repent from his sin. Has he given you money? Use it to advance the kingdom, the kingdom of God. How many of our efforts aim that the gospel of Jesus will be proclaimed? There is no greater work that can be done for the kingdom. Jesus himself, he came to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel. God's plan will always succeed. He is executing it right now through extraordinary or ordinary means. Either using men and women in his service or despite them. And it gives Christians a great comfort to know this. Comfort that God is firmly speeding the day when he's coming to rescue his people for himself. But if you think that your destiny is in your own hands, or perhaps that history is just random, and that, that wrong assumption leads you to live for yourself, to invest all that you have in your own kingdom, in your own satisfaction, this text is a sober warning. There is a king in the world. It is not you. Jesus is king. Oh, friend, just as in our narrative, allegiance to the king is a matter of life and death. In your case, eternal death. If you do not submit to the king, 
to the King, uh, to the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Please bow before him. Bow humbly to the King of Kings. He is a merciful King. And today, he offers you to submit to him. Let us pray. O Lord our God, indeed you are the only God. And you have set your king in your holy hill, Zion. And from there, he governs the world. It is him that we came here to praise. O Lord, may all desire of self-exaltation die in us. Please, Lord, let us help us to mortify this sin in us. Lord, may your kingdom come starting in our own lives. Rule us. Rule this church. Rule this place. In Jesus we pray. Amen.